from PRX. Today on Studio 360... Most of them are little animals made out of glass. Mother calls it my glass menagerie. It's our hour of glass. Tennessee Williams Glass Menagerie and splendid glass buildings by architects from the Bauhaus. You actually feel something about being in a space which has been so well articulated that it actually moves you. And composer Philip Glass on his spectacular Einstein on the Beach, the big breakthrough he was waiting for. Look, I wasn't willing to drive a taxi for the rest of my life. Which you did into your 40s. Into my 40s, yeah. All that and much more is ahead on Studio 360 right after this... Break. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. This month is the 75th anniversary of Tennessee Williams' great groundbreaking play, The Glass Menagerie. Tennessee Williams was 33 when it opened in Chicago in 1944. And it became this really vivid overnight success. It turned him into a household name. That's WNYC culture editor Jennifer Vanasco. The Glass Menagerie is a domestic drama by Tennessee Williams. It takes place all in an apartment in St. Louis. Tennessee Williams called it a memory play. And what he meant by that is that not only is Tom telling it from the future, but he's telling it out of his memory, which means that maybe he doesn't get all the details right. Being a memory play, it is dimly lighted. It is sentimental. It is not realistic. In memory, everything seems to happen to music. That explains the fiddle in the wings. So Tom is the narrator of the story. Tom is really a stand-in for Tennessee Williams. I am the narrator of the play and also a character in it. The other characters in the play are my mother, Amanda, my sister, Lara, and a gentleman caller who appears in the final scenes. Tom works at a shoe factory. He's really unhappy because really, in his secret heart, he's a poet, very much like Tennessee Williams. There's Amanda. She is the matriarch of the family, the single mother who's very demanding, very naggy. We also have Laura, Tom's sister and Amanda's daughter. She's kind of emotionally fragile. Laura is most likely based on Tennessee Williams' actual sister, Rose, who herself was later diagnosed with schizophrenia. Laura just really wants to be left alone. She has this collection of glass animals, the glass menagerie, the unicorn, horses, other kinds of animals. She just wants to spend the day polishing them, taking care of them. I have my glass collection. They're ornaments, mostly. Most of them are little animals made out of glass. They are the tiniest little animals in the world. Mother calls it my glass menagerie. And it's a story about nobody getting what they want. The brother wants to escape his dysfunctional family. The sister wants a gentleman caller to rescue her from her shyness. 
And the mother keeps telling Laura, you need a job or you need a husband. What are we going to do the rest of our lives? Just stay home, watch the parade go by, amuse ourselves with this glass menagerie, darling. The glass animals are really the central metaphor for the glass menagerie. One of the glass animals in particular, a unicorn, becomes a metaphor for Laura and for her possibilities in life. When Jim, the gentleman caller, comes and visits, the unicorn breaks. Oh, my God. It doesn't matter. I'll just imagine he had an operation and the horn was removed to make him feel less so freakish. Now it would be like all the other horses, ones that don't have horns. And we get the feeling, oh, great, she's no longer going to be a unicorn off by herself, solitary, almost extinct. She is going to be able to have a family and have a life just like everyone else. But by the end of the play, we understand that this glass unicorn, this broken unicorn, is actually a metaphor for all of Laura's broken hopes and that she's never going to be whole again. It's really heartbreaking. The play ends with Tom running off to the Merchant Marines. He has not paid the light bill, so his mother and his sister are left in darkness and kind of despair. It's interesting that the play doesn't really put Tennessee Williams in a very good light. Tom really leaves his family in really dire straits, like maybe even worse straits than they would have been if he hadn't even been in the family. I just reread The Glass Menagerie, and I realized that I've kind of identified with all the different characters at different times. That's one of the things that makes it resonant, even though our world is so different than the 1944 world when it was first written. You can keep mining it for experiences over and over. These characters are still kind of the archetypes that we live with. And so many of us also have, of course, dysfunctional families, and we know what it's like to want to escape our situation, and we know what it's like to really yearn for something more. Jennifer Vanasco is culture editor at WNYC. So, Glass Menagerie, glass buildings. When it comes to buildings, it wasn't that long ago that glass had this very particular role. It formed windows, this rectangle set into the wall to let some light in. But a big part of what makes the modern world modern are perfectly rectangular buildings that are all about glass. They're glass skins. And that's due, in large measure, to a small art and design school that existed very briefly in a small German city in the early 20th century, the Bauhaus. The Bauhaus was founded in Weimar in 1919, 100 years ago, which is why I'm talking about it today. My idea was always we have to do something together to destroy these separations between painting and sculpture and architecture and design and so on. It is all one. That's Walter Gropius, who was a founder of the Bauhaus. Its stars included the artists Kandinsky, Maholi Naj, Albers, and the architects Walter Gropius and Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, both of whom ran the school as well. Even though the Bauhaus only lasted for 14 years, the architecture and design faculty became so influential that the school's name became the name of a movement and is still practically synonymous with modernism. 
So to get a centennial fix on the Bauhaus legacy, especially in America, I called my friend Francis Bronette to go on a field trip to look at some of New York's Bauhausian buildings. Andiamo. Or however you say that in German, I guess. <laughs> Francis is an architect and president of Pratt Institute, the architecture and design and art college in New York, where I happen to serve on the board. Even the question of what is Bauhausy, right? What does that mean? For the original Bauhaus architects, it meant more than just aesthetics. After the hell of World War I, they wanted to make the world a better place. When we look at the origins of Bauhaus, it had a social project. This was an industrial revolution. It was a moment in time where you were building new professional class that was going to be using new materials, new techniques, new processes, new tools, and develop a whole new world with that where more people could have access to it. More people could have better lives. That was the intent. The lasting big Bauhaus idea in architecture was that modern buildings shouldn't look like decorated cakes, but like the sleek engineered machines they are, showing off their modern construction techniques and modern materials like steel and plate glass and grids of columns and beams and cantilevers with flat roofs. So what was the Bauhaus about? It was deep experiments with new materials, new technologies, new ways of thinking about labor because they were trying to figure out the place between craft and manufacturing. They're walking into the Industrial Revolution. They're coming out of the first Industrial Revolution. What can we do now to to generate things for everybody? But also, what does technology reveal about the making of something? What can we do? After the Nazis shut down the Bauhaus in 1933, the architects, Gropius and Mies, as he was called, emigrated to America. And Mies set up the important U.S. Bauhaus outpost at the Illinois Institute of Technology. He even designed the campus, where, until just a couple of years ago, Francis was provost. I not only taught at IIT and lived on a Miesian campus, I actually lived in a Mies Tower on Lakeshore Drive. Really? Along the lake in Chicago? Yeah. So Mies van der Rohe, his father was a stonemason, so he grew up learning about craft, very, very deep awareness of how you make things, attention to detail. Of course, about those buildings, not everybody in America instantly loved Mises to pieces. Mies, isn't your purely technical approach to architecture a denial of aesthetics, of beauty? No, I don't think so at all. I think uh, the technological approach is just to use the means we have in our time. And uh, the aesthetic is a question of proportions, of detail. Somebody said, God is in the details. But before long, he and his influential followers helped bring the Bauhaus DNA to every new post-war American big city, including here in New York. 375 Park Avenue. Not just another New York office building, but in the words of architectural leaders, a singular landmark with a loop and aristocratic qualities not likely to be often repeated in any city anywhere. A new standard of architectural quality. Here we are at the Seagram building, one of the great buildings, certainly of Park Avenue of New York, of America. 
it's still to me a beautiful building, but it's probably not as extraordinary as it was when it was put up 60 years ago. Well, of course, one of its extraordinary features is that it's still extraordinary, right? That it's timeless. Yeah, it's this dark black steel and glass. Basically. It's actually uh, coated in bronze. Uh -huh. really? And this one has a kind of patina that wasn't the norm. In the search for a special dignity and design, age-old bronze was chosen. Other New York skyscrapers wear faces of aluminum, steel, glass. But this building, sheathed in bronze, is unique. The Seagram building is 38 stories, just tall enough to be imposing. Amber-tinted glass, dark bronze, and out front, this perfectly scaled stone plaza with two decorative pools. The building is as refined and serious as a bespoke business suit. This is also a building in some way that, you know, expresses its structure. Um, okay, so you see the, basically, what other people would call columns, but they're not columns. Uh -huh. The vertical elements that uh -huh. are going all the way to the top uh -huh. as singular strips all the way up. Unrelenting, right? They're not broken. Uh -huh. Do you see them going yeah, up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are actually added onto the structure. They're not doing anything other than an aesthetic. Construction men speak of them as mullions. These columns have two architectural tasks to perform. They separate the floor-to-ceiling windows, and also they multiply the vertical lines, rising majestically from the glass-walled ground floor to the top of the building. Here is accent, unrestricted, pure upward movement. So when people say, well, Mies didn't use any decoration, it's ridiculous. Right. You have to look at all of these details. You know, look at where any kind of great is placed. Everything is absolutely deliberate. Right. There is nothing arbitrary about where things land and where the joints look like. It has a certain kind of proportion and right. rhythm, right. right? And symmetry. Right. That's in some ways a kind of controlled discipline. Yeah. And what's interesting here is that it has this incredible fluidity from inside to outside. Right. It's pretty remarkable. Right. You can see that fluidity between inside and outside that Francis is talking about when you look at the pink granite that paves the building's lobby, which is the same pink granite on the surface of the plaza just outside the lobby's glass walls. And the surface is continuous. It goes right inside. Oh, right. There isn't a threshold. And it's the same material just goes right same through. Same material goes right through. So uh -huh. he's basically saying as though anybody could come into the building. Everybody is welcome. There isn't this monumental staircase and you have to sort of ask, do I belong here? It's, you, you feel like you can come on here, but there are some discussions about this because he says everybody can come here, but there's no place to sit. Then we headed inside the building. Here we are in the lobby of the Seagram building, which is grand, but not bombastic or gigantic. And it's kind of Small. Modest. <laughs> modest. No, it's modest. It's what, two stories, maybe 100 feet by 50 feet, glass and bronze and beautiful travertine marble, right? Yes. And it's fascinating to me to see what's here because I'm sure these desks, this is not a Miesian aesthetic, They're, they have too much detail. They're not as elegant as the building itself. Uh -huh. the, the level of precision that, right. and control right. that he wanted. Now, in fact, there's a lot, a lot of work in writing about um, modern architects wanting to control what you were wearing, um, the furniture. Yeah. In the lobby of many of their residential towers, Mies van der Rohe, for example, would have designed the chairs. Oh, Frank All Lloyd Wright was doing that before there was way, way these before. guys. Yeah. Slippers, everything was yeah. taken care of. 
That is actually the critique often of the work. Does it allow for people to truly inhabit the space? You mean as opposed to being too austere and, and hard? Well, and you have to be controlled. And so I think that the real question is, what are the parameters by which we can occupy these spaces yeah. and feel okay about being in them? Right. So let's uh, walk across this gorgeous continuous floor slash plaza over to the Lever House. Conveniently, 50 yards away was another masterpiece of the Bauhaus aesthetic, a building I just love. Lever House, 390 Park Avenue. It was built in 1952 as headquarters for the Lever Brothers Soap Company. From Lever House in New York City comes the greatest skincare discovery of our time. Dove creams your skin while you wash. It was designed by Gordon Bunshaft and Natalie DeBlois, who were American disciples of Mies and worked in the Bauhaus mode. So there were architects already bringing this, what ultimately became the international style. Right. They were explicitly influenced by all these European modernists, including the Bauhaus guys, right? Absolutely, because this work was already being done everywhere. In, in the, Europe. In the, yeah, in the 20s and 30s. Now, was it being built that early? So it's existed on paper, buildings like this. Well, Mies van der Rohe was doing drawings of glass towers that were very, very sophisticated in the 20s and 30s. So it is this very slender glass lab and this mirrored blue-green window glass, which is a very distinct part of the building, right? Well, remember the context in which they're operating. The street was a set of buildings that were brick and stone. Right. And all of a sudden, there's this very, very light, almost diaphanous project that challenges the sort of heaviness. Right of these other impenetrable buildings. Right. And this building is thinking about opening up space so you could actually see it. Right. And I think what's really important about this particular building is its play with openings and solids. And light and void were very, very central to the way the Bauhaus experimented and looked at projects. So you have an open space on the ground that anybody can go into. So you're on the street, and then you're in this beautiful covered space, and then you're in this courtyard that's completely open to the sky. So I think that's what's extraordinary. Again, the play of inside, outside, inside, outside. This building is actually, I think if you go back to its social agenda, if you want, it's giving back to the street. Right. It's saying to the people, yeah, you can come in here because we don't have anything marking the edge of it. Right. The sidewalk goes right into the plaza. People are cutting right diagonally across it. They feel that they're welcome to just enter fundamentally private property. The Lieberhaus architects worked for Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, which was the modern American firm when I first heard of architects as a kid. Among other things, Skidmore designed the former Sears Tower in Chicago, the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, and skyscrapers and banks and corporate buildings almost everywhere. Frank Lloyd Wright referred to Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill as the three blind niece. Many people will say Skidmore, Owings, Merrill were the firm that understood niece and that work and were able to develop it into a very, very corporate model. Very sophisticated and became the firm to do the most eminent corporations. Right. Which is another way 
the Bauhaus had this, was immortal, or at least had this life in, in the United States and the rest of the world beyond the actual dudes from the Bauhaus. Right, but it was also about, can the building itself be part of the brand? So the Lever House was part of the brand. You know, think about it. Uh, it was transparent, they're selling soap. The building is the headquarters of a soap manufacturer who has a natural interest in keeping things clean. It becomes an advertisement for Unilever, right? So you're saying Seagram is just a big bottle of scotch, basically, in that <laughs> sense, I guess. <laughs> oh, there's the bronze. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but one of the other things to be aware of is that there seems to be a small irony, right, in the fact that the Bauhaus started off as a social proposition and then the first buildings to emerge are corporate entities, yeah. right? Uh, so, so these modern buildings in the mid-50s in America seem like the very expression of sophisticated and modern and new, which America was so trying to own and be at that time. The difficulty, of course, is that in some ways to do this as well required an incredible discipline. Right. And not everybody had it, and it was also easy to copy. So by being easy to copy, some of the very sophisticated nuances get lost. And then, of course, how do you do this without doing a thousand iterations, losing money on the job? So I think that people started to shortcut that, not understanding the values of the proportions of how people move through the building, the relationship of the scale itself, how big can you go before in fact there is failure, aesthetic failure. So if you look across the street at whatever building that is whatever, across the street. Who cares, 1990, whatever. Right. Yeah. There's a kind of value engineering there, right? We're not That's the phrase, right? The value engineering is the architecture phrase for making it cheap. For taking out things that might cost too much. Yeah. Right. And so much smaller panes of glass, right. so much less expensive much less difficult to install. Right. And again, we're trying to figure out ways to make things faster, better, cheaper. Right. And sometimes the design was one of the things that got forfeited. Yep. Right? Remember some of the most extraordinary designs have a poetry to them. And that when you go in, they're not just about, oh, I get it, blah, blah. You actually feel something. You feel something about being in a space which has been so well articulated that it actually moves you. And there are a few of those spaces. And sometimes you have to be there for a while before it becomes a part of how you experience it. It's not going to happen in a moment. Beautifully said, and that is true of these two buildings, each of which I have hung around a couple of dozen times in my life, and I feel that with both of them. Francis, Madam President, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Francis Brunette is an architect and the president of Pratt Institute. You can see pictures from our field trip and the buildings we visited at studio360.org. By the way, if you're going to be around Chicago or in Germany during the next couple of months, there are a few Bauhaus Centennial exhibits that will still be up in early 2020. You can find out the details at studio360.org. Coming up, some more glass, an unbroken glass ceiling. Dear Bunny Burson, 
This letter is to confirm you have received the actual confetti that was loaded and ready to drop from the ceiling at the Javits Center on election night. An artist's quest to make something positive out of the confetti that never flew for Hillary Clinton. That's ahead on Studio 360, right after this. Studio 360. Today's show is all about glass. Mirrors were originally favored because they attracted the light. Design critic Veronique Vienne explains how pieces of reflective glass in France a few hundred years ago launched the modern culture of narcissism. This is how Louis XIV encouraged French craftsmen to make slightly bigger mirrors because he wanted to line the huge ballroom in Versailles with mirrors to reflect the window that were on the other side. People to this day had never looked at themselves in a mirror from head to toe. They sort of fell in love with their reflection. And capitalizing on this, Louis XIV invented fashion. People became prisoner of their vanity, prisoner of their ego. Imagine now a world without mirrors. Imagine how liberating it would be if we didn't have to know what we look like. I, I would love it because uh, it's, you know, we are enslaved to our image to nowadays. I be your mirror, reflect what you are, in case you don't know. The human eye is very forgiving. And when we look at each other, we edit a lot of things. And, just, and the mirror does not edit, which is uh, why we, we can be trapped, you know, thinking, oh my God, do I really look that bad? But I know that a good mirror, I mean, there are mirrors in which, mostly the one that have a little bit of haze on it, where you look really pretty. <laughs> Even if they are a little foggy because of age and the edge, is, it makes you look a lot more pleasant. We have to reassure each other that we actually are um, not exactly the creature we see in the mirrors. There's a lot more charm to our personality, the way we move, the light, how we move in and out of shadows, and so and so on and so forth, is really part of who we are, as much as this, uh, this stark portrait. Bernie Vien is the author of books about design, including Something to be Desired and Citizen Designer. In 2016, most people figured that Hillary Clinton would break the glass ceiling and become the first woman president of the United States. Instead, a lot of broken hearts. An artist named Bunny Burson from Missouri used that disappointment as a source of inspiration. Specifically, she imagined what it might have been like on election night three years ago if things had turned out the way she had been counting on. Producer Skylar Swenson has the story, which begins with the artist. Going to the Javits Center on election night, people were walking there, excited. The buildings were lit red, white, and blue. Everybody was in a fantastic mood. It was a beautiful night. And here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Decision Night in America. Voters head to the polls to choose between the first woman president and a businessman running for his first elected office. Clinton headquarters is the Jacob Javits Convention Center in New York City with its symbolic glass ceiling. And we get there and see people we know and 
The whole place was festooned with flags and banners, and I've never seen so many smiles. For artist Bunny Burson, walking into the Javits Center on election night felt like approaching the finish line, victoriously. She and her husband worked on the Clinton campaign for months, making phone calls, going state to state, door to door. They both had roles in Bill Clinton's administration, and now here they were for Hillary, looking forward and up. When you looked up at the Javits Center ceiling, the way it was lit, that blue, that royal blue was so intense and the lighting was so perfect. The ceiling is, you know, a broad piece of glass. There are all these little pieces of glass that make up the whole ceiling. I kept looking up thinking that this was going to be something incredible and it was going to be quite something when Hillary was elected president. But the evening, of course, didn't go exactly as planned. Borderline panic in Democrat world. Still has that significant lead, well over 100,000 votes. There's just not enough votes out there, I believe, for Hillary Clinton to to recapture the lead. All of a sudden, the announcers were saying Hillary's only path to the presidency is these states. And that was a, a shock because we certainly never expected it even to be close. CNN now projects that Donald Trump will carry the state of Wisconsin. He's cracked the so-called blue wall that Hillary Clinton... I think there's some real jitter setting in in Clinton headquarters right now. We looked around and there were so many faces that looked distressed, including our own. Hillary never appeared that night. Yet another disappointment. Everybody was sent home at 2 in the morning. So everybody left. It was like a funeral dirge. And um, we left, and by the time we got to our hotel and turned on the television. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. So it was a sad, devastating, unbelievable rest of the night until the next day. I know, I know we have still not shattered that highest and hardest glass ceiling, but someday someone will, and hopefully sooner than we might think right now. On the way home to St. Louis, Bunny got a call from her daughter. Who has a friend who's a journalist, and he knew of my prior work, and, um, He said, you ought to tell your mom that they're packing up, unloading the air cannons and packing up the confetti. And I thought, I have no idea where they're taking it. I'd have no idea what I'm going to do with it, but I want it. Bunny spent two weeks trying to track down the confetti. She called dozens of people who had worked on the campaign. Nobody seemed to know where it ended up. Some people said it's been destroyed. Others said, I think it went to Connecticut, or I think it went to Washington. And then finally, a fellow artist connected her to the Clinton campaign's director of production, who helped her find the company who made the confetti. Bunny contacted a few people there, and when she finally found the right guy... He said, yes, I've got it. And I said, the actual confetti that had been loaded into the air cannons, I don't want any other confetti 
He said, no, I've got that confetti. And I said, how much do you have? And he said, 200 pounds. And I said, I'd like to have it. And could he send it to me? And um, he said, sure. Boxes and boxes of bags filled with confetti arrived at Bunny's doorstep. You know, I could tell that it was was the actual confetti because it wasn't pristine. You know, some of it was bent. The bags had masking tape on them. It came with a letter verifying its authenticity. Dear Bunny Burson, this letter is to confirm you have received the actual confetti that was loaded and ready to drop from the ceiling at the Javits Center on election night. When Bunny opened the first box, she could tell this wasn't just any confetti. It's plastic. It's not paper. And it's luminescent, it's pearlized, and it's much bigger than what I thought it would be. In other words, it looked like glass. And Bunny suddenly understood two things. First, the way the confetti would have likely been used on election night. Clinton would have had some line in her victory speech about the glass ceiling being broken. And the confetti would have symbolized the shattering of the glass ceiling. And the second thing that came to Bunny was an inkling of how she would turn her disappointment into art. When I saw what the confetti looked like, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to feel, and I wanted the viewer to feel, what it would have been like to have been in the midst of all this confetti. And I thought about a giant snow globe in which I would be in the middle. The Bruno David Gallery in St. Louis gave Bunny their front window where she could construct this giant snow globe. It was five feet tall by five feet wide and three feet deep. Generators and a fan blow the confetti around the space continuously. And lighting and a mirror were installed in the back so that when people walk up to the window, they'd see the reflection contained in the globe. And in the mirror, when you see yourself being showered by a glass ceiling that has just been broken, You can read the words of poet Maya Angelou. And still I rise. Confetti usually is a medium we associate with happy times and celebrations. And I'll be honest, a lot of people who came to see this installation, who are definitely on the same page I'm on, they said, oh, this is so sad. But for me, using it in the way that I'm using it, I feel like it still has that same resonance, that it's about the future and that we all need to be hopeful about the future and doing our part for the future. Bunny's heard from people all over the country who have seen pictures of the installation but wish they could see it in person. So she decided to create a thousand smaller snow globes using the same confetti and plans to send them to people. And it turns out that the person who wanted more than anyone to be showered by that confetti will soon be getting some. We happened to see President Clinton at an event, and my husband showed him an image of the the piece. And he said, has Hillary seen this? We didn't know whether she had or not, but he took a photograph home with him. And within the week, I got a letter from Hillary, and it was beautiful, thoughtful, and she felt that this was a wonderful way to use the unused confetti and that she was glad that I had kept the flame alive. I'm sending her a snow globe. That story was produced by Skylar Swinson. You can find out more about Bunny Burson's art and snow globe project on her website, 
bunnyberson.com. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Coming up next on our Glass Hour, Philip Glass. He's written operas about Einstein and Gandhi and Walt Disney. He said 50 years from now, which is now, young people may not know that there was a guy named Walt Disney that they'll think is just a company. One of the big themes is about the immortality of art and the mortality of the artist. The composer Philip Glass, here on Studio 360, right after this. Studio 360. And to round out our glass hour today, we go non-literal to a glass I've been a fan of for decades. Not J.D. Salinger's Franny or Zoe or Seymour Glass, a real person. But not my pal Ira either. No, his cousin the world's other famous living glass. For a half century now, the composer Philip Glass has been creating operas, symphonies, chamber music, and very influential film scores. Like this one for The Hours. I spoke with Glass in 2012 when he was in the middle of celebrating his 75th birthday with a year of nonstop concerts and lectures. Turns out it's exhausting being a high art superstar. Uh, and the thing is that I mistakenly or cleverly, whatever it might have been, I kept the same writing schedule as if it was a normal year, Yeah. which meant that I had a hell of a full year. Yeah. But uh, on the other hand, uh, I was thinking just today, it's, it's nice to be, uh, I had to work so hard this year that I didn't have any time to think about slowing down. I've been a fan of Philip Glass's music for my entire adulthood ever since I first heard Einstein on the Beach, the opera that made him a household name. I asked Glass if he remembers the first time he became interested in Albert Einstein. Yes, I do, uh, because it was a, a momentous event in my life. It was, uh, uh, I was born in, in, in 37, so in 1945, I was eight years old. And you were basically growing up during World War II. It was coming up uh, to we, consciousness. Oh, we saw, uh, when you went to the movies on Saturday for maybe 25 cents, you saw the newsreels. And after the, uh, after the war... Uh, suddenly, the the huge uh, uh, interest in Einstein began about just about then, forty six, because people began wondering how did this happen? What does it mean? And suddenly, there was a tremendous interest in science. And in the I grew up in a, in, in Baltimore, which had a wonderful public library called the Enoch Pratt Library. My mother, by, by the way, was a librarian by profession, was a teacher and librarian. So that we all had library cards when we were kids, and every Friday we went to the library and got our books out for the week. And uh, at the library, they had talks and presentations and guest speakers about Einstein. 
And then as you were growing up and becoming a teenager, he was in the United States and becoming more and more he celebrated. Was a, he was a, we, would, we, call, we would call him today a rock star. Let's listen to a little bit of Einstein on the Beach. Now, if any of our listeners are wondering what the words are, they're simply saying in that section, one, two, three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. Yeah, that's right. And I was just listening to it, Kurt, and was thinking that if someone had, if it hadn't been written 35 years ago, if someone turned up with that piece today, it would sound absolutely new. Which speaks to the fact that not much has advanced in 35 years? Well, let's put it this way. I think, in fact, that the that, that spirit of experimental work is still around. The generation of, of avant-garde music that preceded my generation had kind of... They were satisfied with obscurity in a way that none of us could imagine. That's interesting. So you, you, you feel that it was... I mean, I, I think of, well, a wider world plucked you avant-gardists out of obscurity, but, but you're suggesting that it was you avant-gardists who wanted... We were this... We you were, wanted to be big time. We were the third or fourth generation yeah, by then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 and, and, uh, and obscurity was, was, was no, not something you were willing to... Well, look, I wasn't willing to drive a taxi for the rest of my life. Which you did into your 40s. Into my 40s. Yeah. Well, and you were, you essentially are, you and Robert Wilson and others, are the last avant-garde generation for whom that's possible. I mean, it seems as though the idea of the avant-garde became a, a, a null set at a certain point. I think that's true. Uh, there's another odd thing about, there's a peculiar thing about Einstein, which I've just noticed recently. When I was talking with a, a tabla player from India about this, and we were talking about the structure of music. I studied I worked for Ravi Shankar for a long time and studied with him because to work with him is to study with him. There's no difference, really. And um, that had a big impact on my music. I would think the biggest. The, yeah. No, uh, Nadia Boulanger, who was uh, also was... With whom you studied piano in uh, I studied I studied composition and, uh, and harmony and counterpoint. I was with him at the same time, actually. This was in the mid-60s. And to give listeners uh, a flavor of that crucible, let's play a little bit of Nadia Boulanger on piano, followed by... Ravi Shankar on the sitar.
But the point is that uh, the rhythmic structure of, of Indian music is based on the idea of binary music. It's, it's like ones and zeros. Instead of ones and zeros, they use twos and threes. But it's basically the same idea. Of, 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 of you can have an endless stream of, of information with two uh, integers, really. So Einstein uh, came, I uh, see, that was written 10 years after I completed my studies with, with them, and I spent 10 years developing a language which integrated this kind of binary way of thinking with, uh, with traditional harmony. Now, when you're listening to that piece, what you're hearing is binary music. So is it possible that I'm, I, I was anticipated, not I did, but... The, the digital revolution? Well, I would say it wasn't me. I would say that the that global music had anticipated yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That I, I learned it from India, uh, and but I could have learned it from Africa also. Well, it's interesting. Now that you say, oh, Nadia Boulanger and, and Ravi Shankar were my great influences, it's almost like a an equation. Nadia Boulanger plus Ravi Shankar <laughs> equals Philip Glass. That's right. In fact, I often described that, those, that the experience of that year. I said it was like having two angels on my shoulder, one on the right shoulder, one on the right ear, one on the left ear. And I said one taught through love and one taught through fear. You I were, assume Boulanger was the fear. Everyone does, and actually that's correct. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and yet, in the end, uh, the methodology uh, mattered not as much as the content. You once said that you, quote, had the ability to write music that was so radical that I could be mistaken for an idiot, and it absolutely didn't bother me. <laughs> what what did people find idiotic 50 years ago? Oh, there was a lot of repetition. Yeah. Well, we know that. Yeah. Well, and that well, was just yeah. like, well, what is uh, it? That's know, all he knows how to do is repeat? You either could hear it or you couldn't. Yeah. It, but it's like, when I remember when I first walked into the Museum of Modern Art and saw a painting of Frank Stella's, I didn't know what the hell it was. Uh uh, the language I was used to abstract expressionists I was used to Pollock and Gustan and all these guys and suddenly there was someone working in a different way and I was totally shocked and I think the, the it's the it's the shock of a new language and uh, that can that can paralyze you at first at first however I had learned from my father actually that uh, that familiarity can breed love not contempt it breeds love I started listening to your music uh, in my 20s on my Walkman um, and and uh, fell in love with it. And then one of the things that kept me interested during the 1980s and then into the 90s was that you changed. You weren't just doing the same thing over and over. And, and the music became more lyrical, romantic, melodic, accessible, uh, anything, all of those yeah. things. All kinds uh, of things. Um, <laughs> for instance, I want to play a little bit of your Symphony Heroes from 1996. How conscious was that transformation from Philip oh, Glass was Phase 1 to Philip Glass Phase 2. It was two. very conscious because uh, uh, when I had my, uh, I had met Ravi Shankar in 
Boulanger at the same time. And that was the beginning of, a, of an experiment in musical language that produced finally Einstein. Einstein was actually the end of that 10-year period. It wasn't the beginning. The beginning of the next period was Satyagraha, which doesn't at all sound like Einstein. So I said, okay, that I did that, and now that music didn't exactly go away. It it became part of my uh, my musical resource, but it wasn't something that I felt compelled to to. Uh, and the change reproduce. you think was motivated by oh, I just want to do something new, or people like this just, more, just or? curiosity. Yeah, my public didn't noticeably change for a long time, though there were a lot of people that came to the Met. And, but uh, it was hardly an overnight success after that. It was another 10 years before. Uh, well, it's a, these days, the concerts sell out, but it was a long time before that was a, a fait accompli. Uh, is it true you are now engaged in a, writing an opera about Walt Disney? It is true. And, and do you, what's, your, what's your big idea about Mr. Disney? He's a very interesting guy. He's a man who had a vision that uh, became global. I mean, there's, there's it's no... It's hard to think of a more influential person. It's a very... Uh, and then, but the thing that's really interesting, I, it was about the death of Disney, really. It was about the last three months of his life. And the the conflicts that he has about uh, dying and, and thinking, and at one point he says, you know, what, he said 50 years from now, which is now, actually, uh, young people may not know that there was a guy named... Uh, Walt uh, uh, Disney that I think is just a company. So that the one he would, that pained him at the same time, he would also say, "Well, the thing that will last will be Disney." So in a way, it's the, it's kind of the it's the it's the one of the main one of the big themes is about the immortality of art and the mortality of the artist. Will you make any musical references to Disney oh, I music? Don't think so. no? no, I can't make any visual ones either. I mean, the property, uh, the artistic property, belongs to the Disney company. There's no question about that. The the the, the man, uh, I think he, he was an, an an amazing American. It's not a whitewash either. The more you find out about a person, the more the humanness of it becomes very moving. To me, that's what the story is. When we elevate our our artists and our our, our geniuses beyond the human level, we lose something. Uh, this is a work of fiction. This is not a documentary. I mean, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's, opera is above all, it's poetry. When people go to Einstein, they're not going to walk away understanding the biography of. No, they won't understand the biography of, of Einstein. And they or won't the nature even, of physics. And they won't. But no, but what they will see, whether they, uh, they will see some of the things that Einstein thought about, which Bob Wilson was able to translate into images. I look forward, and Philip Glass, thank you very much for coming in today. Very pleased to be here, Kurt. That opera about Walt Disney, called The Perfect American, premiered in 2013. And that is just about it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. The production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez Monsalves, Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian, Morgan Flannery, and I am Kurt Anderson. Thanks for listening. PRI Public Radio International.
Next time on Studio 360... The Brill Building was all music people. How a group of young songwriters ended up in a Manhattan office building and reshaped pop music. There was such an excitement going on all the time that you walked in, I mean, you were riding in the elevators, you were riding at Jack Dempsey's next door. It didn't matter. The atmosphere was just so conducive to writing songs. The Brill Building, our next Studio 360 New York icon. Stay.